You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. But Romans chapter 9. For many Christians, it's a chapter that they don't know quite what to do with. It's a chapter that, in some contexts, doesn't get a lot of play, doesn't get a lot of airtime. Rumor has it that many a published Bible study just skips right over it. On the other hand, in the hands of other Christians, Romans 9 is a blunt instrument with which to bludgeon people with the sovereignty of God. Mackenzie and I were talking the other day in the office and remarking about these things and said to one another, you know, Romans 9, it seems, is either a boogeyman or a bat with which to beat others. Maybe in your experience as a Christian, maybe as you sit here this morning, you are one of those Romans 9 pepper spray kind of people. Or maybe as you sit here this morning or there was a time in your Christian life where You read Romans 9 and you thought, wrestling in your heart, how in the world could this be good? My hope for us is that we will see over the next number of weeks how Romans 9 fits beautifully with everything that Paul has written in the letter up to this point and everything he's going to write. I hope that we are struck by his objectives in writing about the sovereignty of God and salvation. I hope we are struck by his mercy and grace. I hope that we all the more know that Christ is the Messiah. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. As you're doing that, it's been a few weeks since we have been in Romans on a Sunday morning. And I said that my hope for us is that we will see how Romans 9 fits beautifully with what Paul has written. So let's consider for just a moment what Paul has written up to this point. After greeting the saints in Rome, Paul said that he was eager to come to them and preach the gospel to them. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that God gives to sinners by faith in Christ is revealed. He goes on in chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 to do a really good job of proving the point that humanity has no hope of righteousness other than being given a righteousness from God. Because all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. But the good news is that now even though we could never be justified by works of the law that we do, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul asked the question, do we overthrow the law with this gospel? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? And his answer is, by no means. We uphold the law 
because Christ has fulfilled its requirements and has endured its penalty. Paul writes that God is in the business not of justifying good people, not of justifying the godly, but of justifying the ungodly by faith. He gives the example of Abraham and how Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. He trusted the promises of God realized in the Christ. We read it this morning. And thereby was saved. And just as it was with Abraham, so it is with all the saints of God. Paul writes that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now and forever. And this is all grounded in covenant representation. Just as Adam's guilt and sin was counted to us, so the righteousness of Christ is counted to everyone who trusts in him. Our salvation is the free gift of God given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ so that just as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Now, with all that talk of grace, Paul anticipates the objection, should we just sin then that grace may abound? His answer is, by no means. Why? Because we have been united to Jesus. We've been baptized into him. We have been justified from sin's guilt, and thereby we are free from sin's dominion. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law, and we have become obedient from the heart. Through Christ, Paul says, we died to the law. This is so that we would no longer belong to it, but so that we would belong to Jesus. And so we do. But then Paul raises a significant question. If we had to be set free from the law, and If when we were under the law, all it did was exacerbate our sinful passions, then is the law bad? His answer, by no means. The law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is with us. The problem is with our sin and the corruption of our flesh. The law, says Paul, was given to increase the trespass. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And when the law comes with the power of the Holy Spirit, it shows us all that we are sinful beyond measure. Paul writes beautifully of the Christian's reality, having been united to Christ, that he does not understand. We do not understand our own actions. The good that the saints want to do, we often don't find ourselves doing. The evil that we don't want to do is what we often find ourselves doing. This leads Paul to cry out. He says that he delights in God's law in his inner man, but he sees another law in his flesh, waging war against the spirit of his mind. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. He saved us. And he did that by sending his son in the likeness of our flesh to keep the law and to die for sin so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. To those of us who walk by faith in Christ and who submit to God's righteousness. We have been adopted as the sons and daughters of God in Christ. We've been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We've not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have become fellow heirs of the kingdom of God with Jesus. And just as he came into his inheritance through suffering, we too will possess ours through suffering. But take heart, says the apostle, that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the greatness of the glory that's coming. For now, the entire creation groans, and so do we. We hope for now for what we don't yet see, and we wait for it with patience. And as we wait, and as we groan, we will be weak. It's true. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us carry our burdens. He helps us in prayer. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. And the will and the purpose of God, beloved, from all of eternity has been that God the Son would inherit a people, a people that he would save, who would be conformed to his image, who would be resurrected to live with him forever. Our assurance and our comfort and strength are found in the fact that our salvation takes rise not in the counsel of any man, but in the eternal counsel of God himself. And he is the one who brings it into effect at every step. What then shall we say to these things? That if God is for us, nothing and no one can be against us in a way that will matter in the end. That if God sent Christ for us, he won't withhold any good thing from us. God is the one who justified us. Christ is the one who died for us and was raised for us. And so we have nothing to be afraid of. No charge against us will stand. No one can condemn us. And Paul says that nothing in all the universe will ever separate us from the love of Christ. That's what he's written up to this point. Let's look to the text, Romans 9, 1 to 5. This is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. Paul has written on the justification 
and the sanctification and the eternal security of believers. And in Romans 9 through 11, he expounds on the doctrine of election, predestination. He does this to teach us of God's sovereignty and God's purposefulness in his dealings with both Jews and Gentiles. The way that this section of Scripture is introduced by the apostle is most appropriate and noteworthy. So Paul has just concluded chapter 8 with lofty and wonderful truths of our security in Christ. I was just articulating some of those. But then there is the reality of Israel's unbelief. By and large, the Jewish people had rejected Christ. They had not believed in him. Paul is grieved by it. And it's a problem. Does God really keep his promises? Is he faithful? And is Jesus really the Messiah? Romans 9 is not a standalone treatise on the sovereignty of God. It is a defense of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. It is a defense of God's faithfulness. And it is a defense of Jesus as the Christ. So with all of those things in our minds, I trust for the coming weeks we will keep these things in our minds. We're going to embark now on the rest of the message. I have three points for the rest of our time. Number one, Paul has great sorrow on behalf of his fellow Israelites. Point one. Paul has great sorrow on behalf of his fellow Israelites. Verses 1 through 3. So Paul, in verse 1, uses strong language to emphasize the sincerity of his grief over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. This was necessary, you understand. Paul's fellow Jews would have seen him as a staunch opponent. Why? Well, because of the doctrine that he believed and the doctrine that he taught. Many would have seen Paul as an enemy to his own nation. He was accused of teaching people to forsake Moses. He was accused of being against the law. And so he needed to demonstrate that he had no ill will toward his fellow Jews. Far from it. The verses 2 and 3, we're going to talk about the, the best way to read these. Christians through through history, have been divided on how best to understand these two verses. And I'm going to give you my interpretation. Remember that there is no punctuation in the original. And mainly I'm referring to the period that's at the end of verse 2 in your your text. It's not there in the original. The phrase, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, or for I could desire that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, is best read as a parenthetical insertion. The statement removing that insertion that Paul is making is simple. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But the insertion is important. It helps us to better understand Paul's grief 
and where it comes from. Because he says he understands that he is just like his fellow Jews. For I myself could wish this. I myself could desire that I were accursed and cut off from Christ like they do. I could still be in their place. There was a time that he was, you know, happily accursed and cut off from Christ. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was a self-conscious enemy of Christ and of his church and proud to be. In other words, Paul was just like his fellow Jews who were rejecting the Messiah. He could just as easily still be there. Paul's saying, I could still be in their place with them rejecting Jesus just as easily as I stand here today trusting him. I'm grieved that they don't trust him, that they have not believed. Paul is grieving for them knowing that he was one of them. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just an observation. After Paul has spent eight chapters extolling the excellencies of Christ and how it is the greatest thing in the universe to be united to Jesus and how the most glorifying and honoring thing to God is that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I find it hard to believe that he is saying, I would forsake him for the sake of my fellow man. That's part of what's behind my understanding of the text. Paul's grief is clear. And I think he is identifying himself as a miserable wretch, just like his fellow Jews. And he could just as easily still be where they are, but yet he believes. I think that's where he's coming from. We sing a song here. Two of the verses go this way. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perish in our sin. Paul could have sung that. We do sing that. I want to briefly dispel a myth If you have ever heard that the doctrine of election, that God has before the foundation of the world chosen a people and given them to his son, and that these people are the ones for whom Christ lived and died and was raised. If you've ever heard that the doctrine of election leads to callousness toward unbelievers, or if you have ever heard that the doctrine of election produces a lack of concern or people to come to faith. Or if you have ever heard that if you embrace the doctrine of election, all you're going to end up with is the frozen chosen. If you've ever known Christians who talk and live and act that way, none of that came from the Scriptures. Not a single bit. As Christians, we seek the salvation of our family our friends, and our neighbors. We, by God's grace and mercy alone, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have come to know that Christ is a Savior. We know that to be united to Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And so, we want others to come and taste, and see, 
and know the same things. We also know that there is nothing special about us. Yes, we're all prideful as human beings. We tend to flatter ourselves and think too highly of ourselves, but we know the truth. We know there is nothing special about us. It's not that we're smarter. It's not that we're less sinful. It's not that we were more tender to the things of God. None of that. We know what we were. We were miserable wretches, dead in sin, enslaved to our cravings, following the course of the world like everybody else, prisoners of the evil one. We were alienated and cut off from Christ. We were without hope, and we were without God in the world. And then God showed up and did a thing. He saved us. He did it. We know that's true. And so in our sane moments, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. We're humbled. We're astonished. Why me, Lord? Why me? Why us? And we trust that if God saved us, he can save anyone. Paul, in this text, is grieved over the unbelief of his kinsmen. He wants them to believe as he does. Why is it that he believes and they don't? He's going to explain that in the chapters to come. Point two. The advantages and the unbelief of the Jewish people. Point two. The advantages and the unbelief of the Jewish people. Verses four and five will be our our text for the next few moments. Paul begins to describe his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, they are Israelites, the most honorable and honored people on earth, the Israelites. They bear the name that God gave to Jacob on that fateful night. You remember it, when God the Son came down and wrestled with him all night and willingly lost and blessed him and changed his name. These people bear that name. They are honored above all people on the earth. To them belong the adoption, says Paul. The nation of Israel was adopted by God as a type of the adoption of his children in Christ. In this sense, Israel as a nation were the children of God as no other nation ever was or ever has been. To them belong the glory, says Paul. This is a reference the manifestation of the glory of God that resided over the mercy seat, for example, in the most holy place. Of the glory of God that often filled the tabernacle and the temple. Of the glory of God that went before Israel in the form of a cloud in the wilderness. The glory of God was with them. To them belong the covenants. 
Most pointedly, the covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made at Mount Sinai, and the covenant made with David. To them belongs the giving of the law. The law was given at Mount Sinai, and Israel were the only people on earth to whom God gave his law. To them belonged the worship. Unlike other nations who were left to their own devices, the Lord had told Israel how to worship him. And he had given them ordinances, institutions, so that they could rightly worship and know him. To them also belong the promises. The Jews received both temporal and spiritual promises from God. The most significant of those promises, of course, pertain to the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. To them, verse 5, belong the patriarchs. They are the people God brought into being through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Through the nation of Israel, living in the land that God gave them, the Christ came. Now, a really important observation. Look at the end of verse 5 and what is written about Jesus. You see, according to the flesh, right, he descended from Israel's race, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That language is the language that Paul uses in chapter 1 and verse 25 to describe the Creator. What can we say about Jesus? He descended from the Jewish people according to the flesh. He is a human being. And there is clearly something more to him, or Paul would not have, he would not have had to add, excuse me, the phrase, according to the flesh. He descended from the Jews according to the flesh, he says. If Jesus was an ordinary man, all that he could have come in was the flesh. But as it stands, he is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a wonderful and straightforward statement about the humanity and the divinity of our Lord Jesus in Romans 9 and verse 5. In his humanity, Jesus the Christ came from the Israelites. And as the God-man, he dwelt among them. Such is the greatness of their privilege and dignity as a people. But here is the reality. Many Israelites did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe his word. They did not receive his testimony. They didn't believe that he was the Christ. And they didn't trust him. So it seems, taking all of the biblical witness and the history of God's people and his promises and the covenants and all these things, it seems that one of two things is true. We need to feel this if we're rightly going to understand Romans 9 to 11. 
it seems that one of two things is true. Either, one, God doesn't keep his promises. He doesn't keep his word. Or two, Jesus is not the Lord's anointed. In the first case, if God doesn't keep his promises, how can anyone know that God will keep his promises to them if so many Jews are not trusting the Messiah who was promised to them? How can we know? How can we take God at his word? If he's made all these promises to Israel, and yet so many of them reject the Christ. In the second case, if Jesus is not the Lord's anointed, well, Jesus is a fraud and a liar. The apostles with him, and the gospel's a sham. If to the Israelites belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, if to the Israelites belong the patriarchs and the Christ came from them, and yet many of them don't believe and will therefore face wrath, how can we know that we will be saved? Paul's answer is going to come in brief at the beginning of the next verse, that it is because the word of God doesn't fail. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And he's going to explain that to us. God, says Paul, has always saved his people. And Paul is going to demonstrate that in the coming verses. If the doctrine of salvation through faith in Christ is in fact the doctrine of the law and the prophets, if salvation through faith in the Christ is in fact the doctrine of the entire Old Testament, then why is it that the Jews reject it? Paul will deal with that as well. It's because the Lord had said that this would be the case. The prophet Isaiah had written these words, cited in Romans 9.29, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if the Lord hadn't done something, there wouldn't be any of us. The prophet Isaiah again cited in Romans 9.27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Isaiah again cited in Romans 9.33, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord had spoken to these things. Through the rest of Romans 9 and on into the 11th chapter, Paul explains how the rejection of the Messiah by the great majority of the Jewish nation was not contrary to the promises or purposes of God. And how the rejection of the Christ by the majority of the Israelite people in no way means that Jesus is not the Messiah. Concluding this point too, this is a burden I know I, I have for us as a pastor here. Mackenzie and I talked about this in the office the other day. I know that he agrees. It's significant for us to observe how Paul introduces the topic of the doctrine of election. 
how he treats it. He begins with his grief over his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he begins with an acknowledgement that he's just like them. His primary purposes in articulating the doctrine of election is to defend the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word, to defend God's faithfulness, and to yet again demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ of God. May we always come to this doctrine with these things in view. We'll be helped if we do. Point three. This is a reflection and application kind of thing here. Point three, the word of God has not failed and Jesus is the Christ. The word of God has not failed and Jesus is the Christ. The word of God, you know, doesn't fail. It always does its work. Consider these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord's word always does exactly what God would have it do. His purposes, every single one of them, are accomplished. The things that the Lord says he will do in his word, beloved, he will do. What he says will be, will be. His counsel always stands. He accomplishes all of his purposes. That matters for you. It matters for me. Because the Lord has promised some things in his word. He's told us how things will be in his word. The prophet Jeremiah. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin No more. That's a promise. Isaiah 43, 25. The Lord speaks and he says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34, the Lord speaks through him. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will rescue my flock. 
and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. There's the language through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If any of you out there this morning are aware of the grave and the fact that it awaits us all, consider these words. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. How will he treat us? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, not one of these promises will fail. Not one. God will keep them all. But you might be thinking, with all of this talk of election and predestination, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know that these promises apply to me? Luke chapter 24. Jesus, after he's been resurrected from the grave, he walks up on two disciples as they're walking to Emmaus. You know the account. They're talking to each other about what's happened in recent days, and Jesus joins in on the conversation. They don't recognize him. He plays it really well. What things are you talking about? What's happened? And they're like, you're the only one who doesn't know what's happened here? So they start to talk about how they had hoped that Jesus, this man named Jesus, was going to be the one, the Christ, the, the, the one to redeem Israel. And that... You know, some of the, the women that would have been traveling with us, they've amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they said they couldn't find his body. Like, all that's going on. And then Jesus speaks to them, and he said, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they keep walking. They draw near to the village. The two disciples, they, they ask Jesus to stay with them. He acts like he's going to go on further, but he does. He stays with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him. 
He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let the hearer understand. We'll be coming to the table in a little while. But continuing on, they see him. Later on, Jesus appears to his disciples, the group of them. He eats some fish, and then he speaks to them. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus himself understood that the scriptures were about him, that forgiveness of sins would be accomplished through the work that he did, that he would die in the place of sinners to pay the penalty that they owe God under his law, that he would be their righteousness, that he would keep the law for sinners so that they might be found just in God's sight, that he would rise from the grave, conquering death and sin and the evil one and being vindicated in the sacrifice that he had offered so that all of his people would live forever with him. This is how Christ understood the scriptures. Now notice in verse 32 of Luke 24, notice the two disciples whose eyes had been opened. Notice what they say to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures? How do you know that the promises of God apply to you? Beloved, you, not just today, but over the course of your life, you have had Jesus explained to you from the scriptures. You've had him held out to you. You've had him heralded to you. And maybe not as much as you would like all the time, albeit, but your heart has burned for him. You knew. You knew and you know that you need him. You know that he saved you and that he is the only one who can. You desire to be with him. There is something about him as he's held out to you from the book. There's something about him that draws you. Why? It's because you're his. It's because the promises apply to you. Jesus says of the good shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow, because they will, then they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Beloved, you knew you wanted to come to him. You knew you wanted to follow him. You said to him, I am yours forever. Why? Because you have heard his voice. Because you're his. Think about your life. I've reflected on mine this week. Think about your life, the ups and the downs. 
the good and the hard, the doubt and the fear, the struggle and the pain. Yet, you're here. You're here. Gathered with Christ's people, casting all of us, casting all of our hope on him. Why? Because you couldn't leave him and I couldn't leave him if we wanted to. It's like Peter. Jesus has said some hard things. People are leaving. Do you want to go away as well? He says. And Peter's like, at least how I would have phrased it. He's like, Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. Beloved, if that is your testimony, I would have left him if I could, but I can't. I don't know where else to go, but Jesus, take heart. Because only the saints of God talk like that. In John chapter 6, Jesus says some remarkable words that are very pertinent to the things that we're considering today and will be in the coming weeks. He says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I'll never cast out. All the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes, I'll never turn them away. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, says Jesus, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I, he says, will raise him up on the last day. Saints, we have an infallible hope. Not because we always do what we say, but because Jesus always does what he says. We will be raised up on the last day. Not because we will never fail Jesus, but because he will never fail us. And so we close in prayer.